Matthew chapter 4, we're going to be picking up where we left off last week. Matthew chapter 4, while you're turning, Romans 8, 5, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but for those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. I believe that our Christian life, the victorious Christian life, will come when we stay focused on the things of Christ. When we stay focused on Christ, we will experience victory in our life. I, uh, one thing I love to do is I love to go and eat lunch with my boys when they're at school. They're that age now where there's a lot of times I won't tell them I'm coming. I try to come, you know, as often as I can, and they'll be in the cafeteria, and I'll, I'll come through, and I'll, I'll poke my head around the door, and I'll watch them for a minute. And then when they see my face, they get the biggest smile on their face. All of a sudden, Mason will start jumping up and down. Max will run as quickly as he can, grab me, and just give me a big hug. I I just think when they're 15, they'll do the same thing, right? But right now, I'm just loving it because they are so excited when I come and eat lunch with them. At their school, the, the parents eat in the hallway on these tables, so they'll get their lunch, and we'll eat in the hallway, talk about anything and everything under the sun. And then when it's time to go back, I'll take them to the the doorway and say, boys, it's time to go. You got to go to recess, and that's always fun. And Maddox will give me a hug. He'll give me a kiss, and then he will go to his spot. Mason will give me a hug. He'll give me a kiss. He'll say, I love you, Daddy. He'll give me another hug, another kiss, and then he'll just hang on as long as he can. I'll say, Mason, baby, you got to go to class you got to go. you got to go line up with your, with your friends in your class. And so then he'll walk a, a little ways, and then he'll turn around, he'll come back, he'll grab onto me again. I'll say, baby, you know, you gotta, you got to go now. He'll walk away because he knows he has to go. The time's coming. So he'll walk, and every five or ten steps, he'll turn around, and he'll wave at me. And then he'll walk a little bit further, and he'll turn around, he'll wave, and he'll blow me a kiss. He'll do that every five or ten steps until he gets to the class line with his friends. And I'll see him. He'll go up to his friends, and he'll talk for a minute. And then both of them will look my way, and they'll start waving at me. I know he's saying, hey, my daddy's here to eat with me and point to me, and I'll be waving, and, and they'll be waving back at me. And then the teacher will come. Miss Nolan comes, and they start walking outside. They go down a sidewalk, and they turn to the side. And so he'll be walking out the sidewalk, but he knows he's getting close to being out of my vision. And so at this point, he's walking backwards. He's walking backwards, and he's waving. I'm about to fall off. He's walking, and he's waving as he's walking. He's blowing me kisses, and he's waving, and he's jumping until he gets to the very edge. He finally gets to the edge of the building and say, this is the building. He will lean over for as long as he can, and he'll be waving. And I'm thinking, i got to go. I can't do this all day, but I've got to wait until he finally makes that last step, and I can't see him any longer. I think it's a good illustration of how we should be with our Lord and Savior. You know, the Bible says to, to pray without ceasing. It means that we are constantly thinking about, we're constantly focused on spiritual things. Sure, we go throughout our day, we go to our job, we're with our family, we go to Walmart, we go to eat, but we're constantly looking to our Lord and our Savior. And I'm convinced the more that we focus on our Savior, the more victories we will experience in our Christian life. 
I just believe that we are not made to live in defeat, and most Christians live their life spiritually in defeat day after day after day. You were made to live in victory. How do we live in victory? We live in victory by focusing on our example, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, defeat comes. You remember when the disciples were in the boat and they saw something in the distance, they thought it was a ghost, then they realized it was Jesus? And Peter said, Lord, can I come out to you? And Jesus said, sure. And Peter got out of the boat and he's walking on the water. Incredible experience, right? He's walking on the water. Everything's going well. He's focused on Jesus. But then the Bible says he began to notice the wind. He began to pay attention to the wind and the waves, and he began to think, this water is very deep. I don't know if I can swim all that well. And as he took his eyes off of Jesus, the Bible tells us that he began to sink. And Jesus came over, picked him up. You have little faith. You remember David? David and Bathsheba, David is at his palace. Bible says it's at the time when kings go to battle, but David is at his palace. One day he goes up on his rooftop. He's looking around, and the Bible says he saw a woman bathing. He saw this woman. She's naked. And then the next line says she was a beautiful woman. David took his eyes off of Jesus, and he began to follow the lust of the flesh. And it led to adultery, and it led to murder. The same is true of Achan. We'll study Achan in a few weeks, I imagine, on a Sunday morning in Joshua. Joshua, uh, Achan, he saw the spoils of the battle, and he wanted those even though it was against the will of God. He took his eyes off the things of God. He focused on what he wanted, and it led to much defeat and anguish in his life. When we take our eyes off of the Lord, it brings us to destruction. Hebrews 12, it says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It goes on and it says, Who in every respect has been tempted, yet is without sin. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so I want to remind you tonight, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will always provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. What it means, there's no sin in your life that is too difficult. There's no sin in your life that has you too tightly. There's no sin in your life that you're in bondage to because Christ always gives a way out. And so we're going to look tonight and we're going to look at how we can be victorious against the sin in our life. We need that, don't we? We need to be victorious against the sin in our life. Let's catch up from last week, and then we'll move on. Look at Matthew 4, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Remember, the end of chapter 3, Jesus has been baptized. We see the Godhead, we see the Trinity in Matthew chapter 3, we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is commissioned to go out and take part in his mission. 
And then he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Remember, okay, a little bit from last week. Before he begins his public ministry, Jesus takes time to spend alone in the presence of God. If you want to be used by God in public, you must first be with God in private. And so Jesus goes and he begins to fast. He does without food for 40 days and 40 nights so that he can focus entirely upon God. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible says the tempter came and said, if you are the Son of God. He's questioning the identity of Jesus. If you are the Son of God, then why are you hungry out here in the wilderness? If you're the Son of God, why don't you tell all these stones, the, the stones in this day, they look like the bread. Why don't you tell these stones to become bread? Jesus, this makes no sense. This is not fair that you are hungry in the wilderness. Jesus, you are the Son of God. Tell these stones to become bread. And what did Jesus do? He responded with Scripture. He said, man does not live on bread alone. What does man live on? Every word from the mouth of God. My physical needs don't matter. My physical hunger does not matter. What I need the sustenance that I need is to be obedient to the word of God. Man does not live on bread, but man lives on the word of God, and I will stay true to his word and to his will. Now, remember, we're, we're tying this in. If you have another verse, another finger to go to, look at 1 John 2.16. That will tie in to our text in Matthew 4. In 1 John 2, we see three categories of sin, and I believe through these three categories, we see the game plan of the enemy. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. When he's talking about the bread, he's talking about the desire of the flesh. It's what the flesh is longing for. It is a fleshly desire. Jesus was hungry. He wanted the food. There was a desire in his flesh. And Satan comes to me and he comes to you and he tempts us in many ways with the desires of the flesh. It could be, as in this case, it could be food. It could be when we overeat and we keep on eating and eating. It could be sleep. The desire of the flesh is to sleep, but we sleep and we sleep and we sleep. It could be a drug. It could be alcohol. It could be sex. The desires of the flesh, and Satan comes in and begins to tempt us with these things. That was a long review, but now we'll go on to uh, this week's message. Look at verse 5. And then Jesus took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
The second temptation comes, and the enemy takes Jesus to Jerusalem. He takes him to Jerusalem, and he sets him upon the highest point of the temple. It was probably the southeast corner, and it loomed some 450 feet high. The temple was the religious center for the Jewish nation, and it was the place that they expected the Messiah to come. And so Jesus is standing on top of this high point, and he's looking out, and he sees people for miles and for miles and for miles. And the enemy comes, and he begins to set the stage for the next temptation. Jesus had quoted scripture in regards to the enemy, but notice in the second temptation, Satan comes, and he uses scripture to try to convince Jesus to sin. Satan comes and he says, again, if you are the son of God. But this time he quotes from Psalm 91. And the enemy urges Jesus to throw himself down from this high point so that his loving father will send the angels to rescue him. Jesus, if you're the son of God, then surely God will do everything in his power to protect you. Jesus, if you are really the Son of God, then if you jump off this high point, the Bible says that the angels will come and they will lift you up and you won't even get a little sore spot on your little toe. Jesus, if you're really the Son of God, then this is what you should do. And so he's focusing on the relationship between Jesus and the Father. He's tempting Jesus to test God. He's tempting Jesus to be prideful in his life. He's appearing to the pride of Jesus. Jesus, if you're the son of God, why should you be hungry out in this wilderness? Aren't you better than this? Jesus, if you're the son of God, why don't you throw yourself from this temple so that everybody will see who you really are? You see, in Malachi chapter 3, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And listen, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Jewish people expected the Messiah to come, and they expected him to come suddenly in the temple. And so when the enemy brings Jesus to the top of the temple and says, throw yourself down, what he's saying is, Jesus, why don't you go ahead and show everybody who you are? Let all the people see that you are the Messiah. Let all the people see that you are the King of Kings. Let all the people see that you are truly the Son of God. Jesus, there is no reason for you to be out here in the wilderness hungry, and going through all these problems, going through all these difficult circumstances, I can bring this to an end for you right now. Jump off the temple, the angels will come, and everyone will see you as the Messiah. Everybody will know who you truly are. Jesus, you deserve more than this. Jesus, you are better than this. And he's appearing to the pride of Jesus. The Bible says in the book of James, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word opposes, it means that God literally wages war against the proud. He is in opposition to the proud. 
Here's your, your first point. The first victory step. You want to be victorious in your life? You want to reach greatness spiritually? Remove the pride of your life. Don't be prideful. Remove all the pride in your life. When you get to Proverbs chapter 6, you see those seven deadly sins, right? Let me read it to you. Proverbs 6 verse 16. It says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among his brothers. You know what all those have in common? They all root back to pride. Every one of them, you can find the foundation in pride. Haughty eyes, you know what it means? It means that you look down on others. You look down in pride. A lying tongue, usually you're trying to belittle someone. You're trying to cut someone else down and elevate yourself. Look at them. Murder, you murder because you don't respect their life, but you respect yours. And so it's done in pride. You can look at each and every one of them, and you can see that they come back to a prideful spirit. If we are living our life and we're living our life in pride, we are enemies of God. Now think about this. Think about the first two sins. Where do they come from? They came from pride, didn't they? Think about when Satan fell. Why did Satan fall? Satan fell because he wanted the position of God. Satan fell because he thought he deserved more than what he had. It says in Isaiah 14, 13, Satan said to himself, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. Probably talking about the other angels. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Lucifer thought he was better. And so in his pride, he rebelled against God. We see the same thing in the garden, don't we? Remember the tempter came to Eve and first said, the lust of the flesh, look at this fruit. Doesn't it look good? Don't you think it'll be tasty? But then he went on and he said, you know what's going to happen if you take this fruit? What's going to happen? You'll be like God. You'll be like God. You see, God's trying to hold you down, but you deserve more than this. You're better than this. And so he began to appeal to the pride of Eve, and she took it, and she ate, and sin came into the world. A person that is full of pride needs nothing from anyone and is self-contained, self-sufficient, arrogant, and has no place for God. A person who is living a life of pride is living in rebellion to the rule of God. A person who is living a prideful life says, I don't need God. I can do this all on my own accord. And so when you go back to 1 John chapter 2, remember we saw the desires of the flesh? Another category is the pride of life. And the enemy comes with Eve. And he comes with Jesus, and he begins to appeal to the pride. Now, I want you to think about this in your life. Are you a prideful person? Are you a prideful person in your life? 
Let me give you a few examples, things to, to think about. Number one, you're prideful. If you always find faults in others, and if you have a harsh spirit, you find faults in others, and you always have a harsh spirit. You see, pride causes us to ignore the sin in our life, but it causes us to see all the shortcomings in everyone else's life. Here's an example of it. When, when someone comes up and maybe they're, they're singing a song, and afterwards you're walking and you're talking about it, do you begin to tear it apart? Do you begin to talk about every note that was missed? Do you begin to talk about how nervous the individual was? Do you begin to have just a harsh spirit where you find faults in everything that they do? That's a sign of pride. Do you walk away from a message Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, walk away from a message, and instead of saying, God, what do you want from me out of the word tonight? Do you walk away and say, boy, that wasn't much of a message? Just a harsh, critical spirit. Do you walk out from the church and always say, why are they doing this, and why are they doing this, and why don't they do this? What are they thinking and doing this? And just begin to criticize every single thing that you see. If you do, it's a sign that you are prideful in your life. If you always think that you could do it better. It's funny, we talk maybe about someone missing a note, not singing well, but most of us can't sing a lick, can we? Or we talk about somebody, maybe the, the preaching wasn't all it should have been. Why don't you get up and give it a shot? That's a different ballgame, isn't it? It is a critical spirit to where we look at everybody else, we look at everything else, and we begin to tear it down as quickly as we can. Or maybe you hear a message, and you say, boy, that's good. I hope my husband's listening to this. You ever do that? I hope my kids are listening to this. It's not about you and the surgery that God can do in your heart. It's about how you think somebody else needs it. They don't need it. You're the one that needs it. God is speaking to you. He's speaking to me. But it is pride when we come down and we have this critical spirit. We're also prideful when we're superficial. We're superficial. We, we worry about the sin in our life that others see, but the sin that nobody else sees, we're fine with it. If you can't see it, that I can look holy, I can look righteous, I can look pure, and I can go on in my life, then there's no problem. Superficial means we play a game. It means we put a mask on. It means that we are a hypocrite in our life. And we're more concerned about how people see us than we are about how God sees us. And if you're more concerned with how people see you, then you are prideful in your life. Another thing is we get defensive. You ever notice that when somebody comes at you and maybe they have a, a critical thing to say, you always get defensive? You just can't take criticism. That's hard, isn't it? Hard to take criticism. And many times we begin to, to argue with it. Well, I, didn't, I, I don't do that or, or I don't do this. It's because we're prideful. We mess up, don't we? I mess up. You can come at me and be critical, and I may not like it, but you're probably right. Because I mess up all the time. In my pride, I've got to argue with you. You know what a humble person does? When someone's speaking criticisms, they just take it. They just listen to it. You know when they speak? When they get in their prayer closet, that's when they speak. Lord, would you set me up right in this? 
Lord, I, there's people against me. There's people that are coming in on all sides, and I don't get it. I don't think I deserve it, God. Lord, would you work in this situation? Another way that we're prideful is when we come with presumption before God. I heard a message not long ago, and this guy got up, and he preached, and he began to talk about the demands that we need to make to God. Who are we to demand of God? You talk about a presumption. Psalm 211, it says, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. You don't come before God and, and think that you're somebody. I'm nobody before God. You're nobody before God. But in presumption, we come into the house of God and we pretend like it's no big deal. We come to the house of God. We haven't confessed sin. We have not made our hearts ready for the things of God. We just come in and we think God's blessed because we're here tonight. Who do you think you are? Who do I think I am? I'm nobody. Pride leads to presumption before God. Pride makes it to where we demand attention. I didn't get my name in the bulletin. Can you believe that? Don't they know what I did? They didn't even put my name down in it. They didn't honor me in the newsletter. They didn't call my name from the pulpit. We want attention. We want everybody to know what we do. Why? Because it's all about me and it's not all about God. And lastly, we, in our pride, we neglect others. Pride prefers some people over others. You know what pride does? It says, hey, I want to hang out with these folks because they make me look good. But these folks, they're not near as important. And so pride makes us want to position ourselves with certain people and not with others. And what that leads to is it leads to a church of cliques. It leads to a church of cliques where we come in and we stay with the same people week after week after week. And we're not welcoming and we're not open and we don't accept others. Why do we not accept others? Because we are prideful in our life. And you've got to look just like me. You've got to talk just like me. You've got to walk just like me. You've got to smell just like me. And if you don't, then I don't have room for you in my life. That is what pride is. Now, you think about it in your life. Do you struggle with pride? Can you think of some ways in your life that the enemy is attacking and making you prideful? Psalm 139, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. You just think about that in your life. Search me, God. Search my heart. Tell me if there's anything in my heart that is prideful. Anything in my heart that is arrogant. Anything in my heart that makes you battle against me because I'm so prideful. Now, number two, we've got to move quickly now. Number two, we remove the pride. Number two, we know the word of God, and the reason is because Satan knows the word of God. Did you catch that? Satan comes to Jesus, and he tempts Jesus, and he tempts Jesus by using the word of God. If Satan knows the word of God, how much more important is it that we know the word of God? Psalm 119 says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. The Barna Group did a study, I believe it was last year, and they found that the majority of Americans believe that the Bible needs a stronger position in our world. 
They said that there are many problems in the world, and, and the Bible has the answer to those problems. One-third of Americans said that there was moral decline, and it was a result of people not reading the Bible. 88% of households own at least one Bible, and most own four Bibles, and some of us own stacks and stacks of Bibles, right? But the study went on, and it found that only one in five Americans read their Bible on a regular basis. Almost 60% read their Bibles four times a year or less. In other words, we are biblically ignorant. And if we don't know the Word of God, we will find that we fall to the traps of Satan over and over and over and over again. Y'all ever seen this show, I think it's called My 600-Pound Life, something like that? It's a show, and there's, there's these folks, and they just, you know, put on a whole lot of weight, and they're 600-plus pounds. I was watching it one day, and this, this interviewer came in and began to question the individual. He's in such a position that, that he can't get up out of his bed any longer. He can't get up. He cannot live a life. He, he can't do anything except lay in his bed. And so the lady began to question the man and said, how did we get to this position? He said, you know, I really, I really don't know. It, she said, don't you know that, you know, if you, if you take in more calories than you burn, that you will gain weight? And he said, lady, I know all the answers. I know that I, I eat too much. I know that I put on too much weight. I know that exercise burns calories. But lady, I guess I didn't care enough. I think that's an honest thing to say. You know, I just didn't care enough. There's many of us in here tonight, and we know that we ought to be spending more time in God's holy word. We know that. We know that it would be a blessing to our life, and it would be a blessing to our families. We know that we need to spend time with God every day. We have heard that preached to us time and time and time and time again. And so the question is, why aren't most of us doing it? And maybe the, the real answer is, we just don't care enough. When Jesus is tempted, three times he is tempted, and three times he responds with the word of God. Three times he's tempted, and three times he comes back with the word of God. Now let's close up here. Satan comes, and he says, why don't you put the Lord to the test? If the Lord really loves you, this is what he's going to do. Why don't you put him to the test? Why don't you see how deep his love is for you? Victory step number one, remove pride. Victory step number two, know the word of God. And victory step number three is trust God. Trust God. Trust his ways. Jesus could have jumped off that temple, but that was not the will of God. And so Jesus responded, I'm going to trust my father. My father has the best way, and I'm going to trust him. Now, were his circumstances good at the time? No. He was hungry. You ever fasted? For a day, man, my stomach is rumbling after lunchtime, right? He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. The circumstances were tough all around him. His flesh wanted the food. His flesh would have liked to have jumped off that temple and let everybody see that he is the Messiah. But despite all of that, he said, I trust the plan of my Father. Now listen, 
It may be that you're going through something really tough in life. It may be that you're going through something and it doesn't make sense and you don't understand it. My question for you is this. Do you trust God regardless? Do you trust God regardless? Even when it doesn't make sense to you. Even when you look inside and you say, do I really deserve this? Do I really deserve all this pain and all this turmoil? Can you then look up and say, God, not my will, but yours be done? You remember before Jesus was crucified? He goes and he begins to pray. And basically he's praying, Father, if there's any other way, if this is plan A, let's find plan B, plan C, plan D. Lord, if there's any other way, let's bring that plan up right now. He's in such agony that he's sweating drops of blood. But then he ends that prayer and he says, but Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, I, I trust you. Even when things are tough, Lord, I, I trust you. And so I wonder in your life, how's your faith? Do you really trust the Lord? Let me ask you to close your eyes and bow your head and just think about this, this tonight. Ask the Lord to search your heart and see if there's any pride in your life. Maybe through some of the examples, you realize that you're more prideful than you'd like to admit. There's pride in your life. And pride comes in and it separates us from God. It makes us an enemy of God. And tonight, I want to give you just a moment to confess that before the Lord. I believe that most sin in our life can come back to our pride. We sin because we say, God, I know best, and I don't really think you know best. I know this is against you, but I'm going to do it my way because this is my life. And when we say those things, we say it in pride. Ask God to show you ways in your life that you're prideful. And then I wonder, do you, do you trust God? Regardless of what you're going through, do you trust God? Are you committed to his will? And are you committed to, to his way? The word says not to be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. In other words, we trust God, so rather than worry about it, we take it to God, and we know that he's in control. Maybe you're worried about something tonight. Let me encourage you, take it to God. Trust him and trust him regardless. That's what true faith is. Lord, we thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for these men and these women who have come, Lord, to study your word. Lord, I pray that you've spoken to us. I pray that you've challenged us. Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, God, we'll be broken over the pride in our life. Lord, that we will be humble. We'll be a people of humility. Lord, we won't be superficial. We won't be all concerned with what people think about us. But Lord, we'll be concerned with what you think about us. Lord, I pray that we'll trust you even when it doesn't make sense and even when it's difficult. God, that our life would honor you in all that we say and in all that we do. It's in your name we ask these things.
Amen. Thank you, Brother Case. Wasn't that tremendous? I tell you, it's a wonderful thing to know that you're going to get the Word of God.